Hey, Carrie Lynn, how's it going? Oh, it's so going. I want to hear all about who we're going to get to speak with today. Me too. And can I just say, as per usual, I am super excited about our guest. Some days do you really feel like we've got like the best job ever that yes. we get to yes. talk to yes, I whoever do. we want? I do. I do. Best jobs ever. <laughs> or at least this particular component of it. Um, yeah, so today we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Stephanie Green. And I've been following Dr. Green's work for a number of years, basically, since probably for me about 2018, when I began to learn more about medical assistance and dying. And you and I started to do some of the research with physicians who were engaging in medical assistance and dying. And Dr. Green has been a leader in this space for years, from being the president of the Canadian Association for Made Assessors and Providers, to the work that she's been doing around curriculum so that people can learn more about the delivery of the practice of medical assistance in dying, and including the fabulous book that she has written. It's so true. As you know, I continue to be a baby scholar, despite the fact that they're handing me letters to put after my name. However, what I love about Stephanie Green and her book and her contributions to the area of medical assistance and dying is that she would be considered in those lit reviews that I love to put together for the work that we do. She's uh, not a seminal because she used to do OBGYN, but she's an ovial. Uh, she's an ovial, I've decided to use ovary, ovary, ovial author of this book because the legislation is so new and here we get to read a book and here when she lectures at conferences we get to go to, we hear from somebody who really was at the very beginning of the legislation as it started and as it's evolving. And I'm excited to hear what her thoughts are. Me too. I have so many questions for her from her book, This is Assisted Dying, to thinking about what's going to happen next for Made in Canada. So let's get the conversation going. Okay, Dr. Green, I really appreciate you agreeing to speak with us today. And I've noticed from having heard you speak in other forums that your career has spanned from birth until death. And so I'm interested outside of the fact that MAID was legalized in Canada in 2016, what was the impetus for you to move into the provision of medical assistance in dying? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. It's, it's, not a, it's not a clear path. It's not a straight, obvious line. I mean, I, I spent my career 20 years, more than 20 years in maternity and newborn care. I've always been interested in the intersection between medicine, ethics, and law. When I came out of uh, medical school and residency, I was really interested at both ends of life. I did partial fellowships in maternity and infant care and in palliative care. And I was really drawn to both, but felt that I couldn't pursue both in my career at the same time as both required uh, such a deep commitment. So I chose the path of maternity care and I, I loved it. And I found that fulfillment that I needed for myself intellectually and emotionally, you know, through that career with women and their families. Uh, but I've always been interested in end of life. And as I neared, you know, 20 years of work, it's, it's quite Demanding work when you're in hospital for 24 hours, delivering babies, assessing emergencies, you know, checking up on your colleagues' patients, it was taking longer for me to recover from those shifts. And as much as I was passionate about my career, I was starting to wonder how long I would be able to continue to do it. And I had some pressures for home, to be perfectly honest. My kids were growing up and would be leaving home soon. I really wanted to be present with them before they kind of flew the nest. 
I was wondering if there was anything else in medicine that would, would ever capture my attention. And one of the pillars of my work and the way I was taught in family medicine is the, the, the primacy of patient-centered care, the importance of placing the patient at the center of everything we do. Um, and as I watched with other Canadians, the change in law, the coming of assisted dying in Canada, you know, this really brought together a lot of the things that really drove me into medicine, the, this patient-centered care, this notion that patients should be empowered to make their own decision, this intersection between medicine and ethics and law. And I really started to follow the story and the case and wondered who would do this work, who would step forward to do this, and could I be one of those people? And I really, I really thought that I might be able to. So not a clear answer to you, but a kind of a perfect storm of a number of factors coming together at the same time. So what helped you to decide that you were a person who would be engaging in medical assistance in dying? Well, the, the more I learned about it, I, I needed to self-educate. I mean, let's be honest, this was coming to Canada. There was not a lot of training programs. There were not a lot of guidance. Medicine is famous for see one, do one, you know, teach one. There was no way to see one or do one here. So you know, myself and a few, a very small number of colleagues, we actually went to a conference in Amsterdam, uh, which I've written about, um, where the World Federation of Right to Die Society holds this international conference every two years. And I was blown away. I, you know, this was a month before our law was due to change. I was able to connect with clinicians who did this work from around the world, with researchers who researched this field of care from around the world, with lawyers with advocates, with a whole variety of people in this field um, and really, really heard from them and learned from them. And the more I learned, the more I was drawn to what they were doing, the more legitimate I saw this, this work and the importance of the work. And it was in Amsterdam that I made that first connection between what I did in maternity care and what I could be doing in end-of-life care, that there was so much overlap, that the description of what they were doing sounded so much to me like what I did in maternity care. You know, I show up as a knowledgeable guide. I prepare people for one of the most important days in their life. I manage emotions and intensity and family dynamics. And I am clearly not the most important person in the room. And there's a real art to that, a real skill set around choreographing such important times in people's lives. And all of that was like true at both ends of life. And I thought, wow. Maybe I have some of the skill set already. Maybe it's not such a foreign bit of work. Maybe I could do this work and maybe I could do it well. I love that. That, that recognition of the transitions that we go through life are essential part. And they also really resonate with who we are as people. And I found that a lot when um, I was privileged to have some midwives uh, accompany me when I gave birth. And it was fascinating because they would ask questions. I was working in palliative care at the time as a social worker on a hospice unit, and they had all sorts of questions. And we did exactly what you're talking about, recognized those similarities and talked about the choreograph that happened both in birth and death. And I recognized as somebody who read a lot before she pushed out babies into the world, that there wasn't a whole bunch of books on end of life. There wasn't a whole bunch of books that we had grabbed from libraries or off the bookshelves that would help us to understand about that equally important transition that 100% of Canadians will go through. So what inspired you to write your book then about assisted dying? There's two ways to answer that question. I'm going to give you both. One of the answers is the true story. Uh, it's like a fairy tale. I mean, 
it never happens. Somebody approached me, a literary agent from New York City, called me after uh, an article appeared on the front page of the New York Times on the Sunday edition in May of 2017, featuring a patient of mine and his story. John Shields was a remarkable man with a remarkable story to share that they profiled. And as his clinician, I was part of that story. And somebody plucked that little bit of detail out of that story and said, wow, I bet you have an interesting perspective. Would you like to write a book? And I had already been starting to journal some, some of the extraordinary situations I had found myself in, in in the year before while I was starting to do the work. So, of course, it struck a chord. And I, I thought, well, maybe with your support, I might be able to do that. So, I mean, that's one of the answers to your question. How did this come about? Why did I decide to do this? Well, someone asked me if I'd be willing. And wow, I mean, incredible. But I think just as equally, I mean, why was I even journaling, right? Why had this struck me? I think it's impossible not to be touched by this work. It's impossible not to be kind of blown away by the situations I was finding myself in, which I'd never been in before. I'd never been asked to do this type of work before. And I was quite struck with what I was seeing and hearing and experiencing and feeling and how it was changing me and how it was changing the lives of those I was working with. And at the same time, as it was really new in Canada, I had friends and family asking me, well, what exactly is it do like what is it that's allowed like what are you talking about every time i'd go to a social setting and someone say you know what do you do i I'd just go well i'm the physician and i kind of leave it at that but when they start to ask well what do you do i you know i'm pretty honest well i, I work in end of life i work in assisted dying and the the presumption right away is palliative care and assisting people as they're nearing end of life and there's some truth in that but what i really wanted to explain was what assisted dying is and isn't and I found that writing a book was a great way to clear up a lot of misinformation and to actually say what assisted dying is, how it works, what are the rules, what do patients have to do, what do clinicians have to do, what is it like when we sit and talk with each other and bring the reader into the room with me? What do I hear from patients? What are they saying? Why are they talking to me about these issues? Like, what does that feel like? I really wanted to kind of pull the curtain back on what assisted dying was. So when someone asked me if I'd be willing to write a book about that, well, that sounded like a great idea to me. Ah, oh, that's, that's wonderful to hear that answer. Kathy and I are both qualitative researchers and are so interested in the patient perspective, in the family, chosen family friend network around the patient perspective. Your book resonated with both of us on, on that level for sure. And you have also wonderfully answered one of our questions I wanted to pose to you, why you call the work that you do deliveries now. And you share that in the early part of your book. I want to take you, though, to chapter 24, Stephanie, and ask you about a quote that I love. You say, the work is less about how people wish to die than it is about how they wish to live. Would you expand on that for us, please? Yeah, thanks for that question. I think it's such an important point. I mean, it's it's kind of the take-home message for me, uh, having worked in this field for seven years now. I mean, when, when someone comes to me and asks me for an assisted death, there's that initial phase of trying to understand what exactly they're asking for. Are they asking for information about assisted dying? Are they asking to speak to a resource person about assisted dying? Are they asking to die? Are they asking for help to die? Are they looking to explore their suffering and other options? There's so many different things it could mean. 
So there, there's that initial conversation, but it quickly, you know, it, it quickly leads to a discussion about what they're experiencing and whether they are suffering in some way. That's part of what we do when we assess people for eligibility for assisted dying is to explore how they may be suffering and how they might express that. And that's always such an intriguing part of our, our interaction because it's, it's not very common that they're talking about physical pain or physical suffering, right? There's physical suffering, there's emotional suffering, there's existential suffering. That exploration of that, of that criteria, you know, from a clinical point of view with patients, it quickly leads to, well, what, what is or what was most meaningful to you? What is it you feel you've lost? What is it that used to bring the most meaning to your life and the joy to your life and, um, and even the dignity to your life? And have you grieved the loss of some of those things? Are some of those things still present today? Are there new things, maybe smaller than you anticipated, but things that bring just as much joy and meaning to your life? Maybe those things have shifted because of your illness progression. Like, let's explore what does still bring meaning to your life. And those kinds of discussions aren't at all about dying. Those discussions are about how they are living. So that's one layer. And of course, you know, I'm a big proponent of of embracing the notion that death is a chapter of our lives, right? Death is not separate from life. Death is one part of our lives. And in talking about death and dying, the other reason I wrote the book, maybe, to contribute to that conversation, to encourage honest and open conversations about death, those conversations ideally are not held just at the end of life, but especially important early on. So we can decide not just what we would want, at the end of our life and explain that to family and friends and have them help us achieve those things, but to help us live our life in a way that's meaningful so that at the end of our life, we can look back and say, this is what was important to me. This is what I did. This is how I lived so I could, you know, espouse my values. And, you know, to think about these things when we're more capable, you know, who is important to me? What is important to me? What brings meaning to my life? Am I living that life now? And what can I do to shift what I'm living now in order to find that meaning or bring greater attention to that meaning? Who do I need to speak to? Like, have I told the people in my life who are important to me that they're important to me? Have I spent time with those people? And those conversations, advanced care planning, looking at goals, is, is as much about looking forward as preparing for how you want to, how you'd like ideally to look back on your life and what would you like to have seen? So all that preparation is not about necessarily how we want to die. That's all about how we think we want to live. And so for me, assisted dying has really opened the door, not just to dying, but living. And, and the other, I'm just going to keep talking here. The other, the other thing that I find is that when I, when I go through this process with patients, when they ask me to help them to die, when we have these rigorous conversations and they go through the process of determining that they're eligible, and I finally get to sit down in front of them and say, that they're eligible from this care. There's lots of things that happen, but one of the things that happen is patients almost immediately stop worrying about how they're gonna die. They have been fearful of that until this conversation with me. They really focused on that. And once I tell them that they have this opportunity, whether they ever take it or not, they stop focusing on how they're gonna die or their fear of how they're gonna die. And they almost immediately start focusing on how they're gonna live the rest of their life, what they're going to do with that precious time that is left. Again, not focused on dying, but really focused on how they want to live their life. 
I'm listening to you talk and I'm like, preach, absolutely. And to me, as you're speaking, Stephanie, you, you sound to me like a palliative care physician. You know, that idea of, and you know where I'm going with this question, of living well until you die. And what can you do so that people see the dying process as an integral part of the living process? And I know, and you do all too well as well, that there has been some discord between the palliative care field and medical assistance in dying. So why do you think there is that discord and, and what's happening there? It's a great question. Often astounds me. I mean, I take your comment as a huge compliment. Um, so thank you. I think palliative care clinicians are probably the most patient-centered clinicians I know. And I don't mean that disrespectfully to my other colleagues, but palliative care docs are really patient-centered. And I think that's a strength of the field. Um, <laughs> Interestingly, it reminds me a little bit about my time in maternity care. I've never actually made this connection before today, but it seems so obvious to me now. Where I trained in family medicine in Montreal at Nicole University, uh, the midwifery program was quite new, and they had made huge strides to kind of enter the field. And the family docs and the midwifery students, like when we were residents, I was a resident at the time, we trained together to do primary care, maternity, and newborn care. We were, you know, doing the same work. And the obstetricians were the specialists who kind of helped us learn and, you know, provided their perspective as well with us. And so there's this, this primary care connection of midwives and, and family docs that did primary care, maternity care, and then there were specialists who did it. And when I initially came to British Columbia, that synergy between midwifery and family medicine was not present. In fact, they were, I would say, a little bit behind, uh, and there was quite a quite a struggle between the midwives and the family docs at that time. Um, there was a lot of reluctance of the family doctors to accept midwifery and maybe felt that they was encroaching on their work. Um, and over time, of course, we've seen the, you know, the embracing of midwifery in British Columbia and how that helps all women of British Columbia in primary care, maternity care. I, I guess I, I draw that parallel because I think when this first started in 2016, it just seemed really obvious to me that palliative care and maid care, they, were, they needed to work integrally. This is all end-of-life care. There was no real distinction between that. I mean, if you're providing end-of-life care to a patient, you were offering all the tools and all the options, and they mandatorily, of course, involved palliative care, and maid was one more tool kind of in the toolkit. Um, so I was quite naively, perhaps, startled by the uh, lack of uh, seeing it the same way by some people within the palliative care field. And I knew from my previous experience that wasn't going to change because I was going to knock on the doors of palliative care folks and say, hey, you got to do this. This is your thing. That wasn't going to be effective at all. I knew what changed people's minds, clinicians especially, are the patients. And I know palliative care docs have said, I'm never going to do that. Or you can do that, and I can respect that, but that's not my practice. Or you can do that in my facility. You can come in and advise my patients because I respect their their the right to know their options. And I respect your coming in to do it, but I won't personally do it. Those are the whole variety of types of responses. And I knew that I would just follow along whatever they needed at the beginning because patients and their clinicians were quite close in the palliative care field. And the patients said to their palliative care docs, I want to explore this. I want to, I want to do this. Can you help me? You've been my clinician. I trust you. You know, can you explain it to me? Can you help me through this? And so 
Um, palliative care clinicians have come to MAID and assisted dying in Canada more and more through the years. There are many, many MAID providers that are palliative care doctors. And I see that changing uh, slowly, perhaps over time. So I'm, I'm quite optimistic that we will see that integration. I know others disagree, but I, I think it's inevitable. I really thank you for that, Stephanie, because uh, the recent uh, statement from the CHPCA, of course, makes a very clear distinction between palliative care and medical assistance in dying. And what I appreciate about your answer really speaks to um, this idea that we don't necessarily have to, um, even if it's in writing or if it's been sort of written, what actually happens in practice might be a little bit more fluid, a little bit more flexible, a little bit more humanely driven. Um, in the sense that we're talking about, you know, human to human relationships and and people going to others and saying, yes, you've seen me through X and Y, and now I'm at Z, and I would really love your input at this point. Exactly. I mean, those doctors realized at some point, oh, this is something I can do or I can offer, and they, they've inched their way through. It's interesting you talk about the official line and then the reality on the ground. Um, you know, what we may get a little bit interesting and controversial, you know, the church as an organization is never going to embrace assisted dying as a concept because of religious tenets and beliefs. And I, I, I respect that, that the church has the ability to, you know, differentiate and, and draw those lines. But on the ground, I have worked with ministers and priests and spiritual leaders of every faith in assisted dying. Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Catholic priests, Unitarian, like Anglican, like all of them. And I get that the church is going to keep their line, but I have yet to meet an experienced spiritual provider who will turn their back on a community member who comes to them seeking some solace. So while they may not fully embrace every aspect, they will still be involved and they will still minister to their population. They, and, and many will stand by their side and hold their hand and pray while they're having an assisted death. So I think there is a distinction between the, the, the party line and the real work. And I think it's important to recognize that. I agree. And I think we're getting a little bit more of that recognition happening when your book captures stories. We're hearing other stories from people. And when I think back to some research that Carrie Lynn and I did a couple of years ago, uh, speaking with people who'd accompanied someone who used MAID at the end of life, I didn't ask the question. And it wasn't until I went through all of our transcripts and was engaging in the data analysis, recognized that people were telling me unasked that they had access to a palliative approach to care and their person still wanted medical assistance in dying. And it happened regularly. So now, as part of our new research, we're now asking that question to better understand that um, moving forward. And you used the term earlier on around the motivation for your book to be able to pull back the curtain of people's understanding around medical assistance in dying. And that's part of our motivation for having this podcast, because again, part of that research project, we ended up doing our so-called research symposium online. And so had people from across Canada, but also around the world coming and listening to, um, we had Sandra Martin, of course, present, but we also talked about our findings and we recognized that there was a lot, and you used this word earlier too, misconception around medical assistance in dying. 
So thinking seven years in, Stephanie, at this point, what do you want Canadians to understand about MADE? Well, that's a good question. I want Canadians to know it is available. I think there's still people who don't understand that it's available. I think it's available. It's legal. It's free of charge. It's a covered medical service. Uh, their life insurance benefits don't change because of it, right? I think, you know, those kind of basic facts, I think, are important. And there's still more education to do about that. I think the Canadian population ought to keep in mind, despite some of the headlines that have been coming around recently, that just about 98% of all made deaths in this country are for those people whose deaths are reasonably foreseeable. These are not the complex cases that seem to be recently promoted in the newspaper with a lot of opinion pieces and a lot of controversial stories being put forward. I think those are really important discussions and I'm happy to get into that with you a little bit more in a minute. I think it's 97.8% of all made deaths from the last national data are actually for people whose deaths are reasonably foreseeable, not those more complex, what we call track two cases. So those are track one cases. So that's important to understand what's really happening on the ground. I think people should know um, how grateful patients are when I simply tell them this is a possibility, not, not even about the care itself, but like just empowering people to know that they could do this if that's what they truly feel they need to do when they've been through the process. And I can say, look, there's no more hoops to jump through. People are profoundly grateful for the mere possibility. I actually think that 80% of my therapeutic work is done in that conversation because people will immediately start to suffer less knowing they have this option. Whether they have an assisted death or not is another discussion, but I think it's objectively therapeutic just to offer this to someone. So I think that's important. I, I, I will merge a little bit into the recent headlines. I think for the first, I'd say five and a half, almost six years of MAID in Canada, the, the headlines and the stories were about patients and their experiences, their families' experiences, some of the clinician experiences. They were primarily positive stories, educational stories, explaining why people would do this and what it meant to them. And it was reflecting the, the overwhelming support of Canadians for assisted dying. I was reflective of that, the gratitude for this to be possible. I think there's been a distinct shift in the past 12 months uh, in the news. Um, and I am perhaps cynical enough to think that this is a concerted effort uh, by those who are maybe opposed to assisted dying, uh, you know, a vocal minority that are more organized at this point and are looking to perhaps conflate some issues. So one of the things I would like the public to really understand and know is that despite some of the headlines uh, that have suggested that Canadians are now applying for MAID, looking to have MAID due to threats of homelessness or the fact that they're living in poverty, those are the kinds of stories we're seeing now. And I think that it is conflation of two distinct issues. So I want to be super clear that the social inequities that exist in this country today in healthcare and in social uh, ways, you know, that are fundamentally unacceptable at every level, the fact that we don't have adequate community mental health services or adequate, you know, disability resources and services, or even palliative care in many places in this country. That failing of our government at every level, municipal, provincial, national, is something that needs to be addressed. And we should be talking about 
And I can't even do my job properly unless those things get better, right, and need to be addressed. So I will stand here and talk about that with anyone. That's not my field of expertise. I don't have the answers to all of that. I don't know that anyone does. But to suggest that until that is solved, we shouldn't have assisted dying in this country, I, I think is absurd. And I think that what I want Canadians to know is that the law is perfectly clear. People cannot access assisted dying in this country because of their housing situation or because of their financial situation or because of their social determinants of health. It is true that anyone could ask for an assessment of eligibility to MAID based on anything they want, but that doesn't mean they're going to be found eligible. So when someone blares a headline suggesting man in whatever location turning to assisted dying due to lack of housing, that is a purposeful conflation of two issues and not doing anyone a service to either issue. You cannot be found eligible for MAID in this country due to those issues alone. And I think that's an important point that Canadians need to understand. I think that is absolutely valid and spot on. And what I would add at this point is you've said about Canadians understanding and 100%. But what I think is also interesting is I, I resided in the United Kingdom for almost 12 years. We're seeing a lot of this kind of story headline coming out of the Daily Mail in the United Kingdom. So, I mean, that's really an interesting kind of segue into this idea that um, we are being watched from other parts of the globe. And it, what I've really just put together uh, from, from your answer, Stephanie, is this idea that countries that have yet to take or put the legislation into uh, place are actually using these kinds of uh, knee-jerk shock media stories in an effort to dissuade their own legislators from coming to situations where medical assistance and dying will be legalized in their own countries. And I mean, we talk about how the globe is, is shrinking because we can access information at any time in any space, but nefariously so in this sense, because people in other countries are watching Canada and being fed through this one channel of news. Yeah. So thank you for that. That's so clarifying. The other thing I think I would like to circle back to is I mentioned the Canadian Hospice Palliative uh, Care Association, but you are currently the president of the Canadian Association of Maid Assessors and Providers. Perhaps you can tell our, our listeners about that organization because very few people with whom I come into contact know about that association. Maybe you can kind of let us know how it, it serves Canadians. I'll make a, a slight correction. I am the founding president of the Canadian Association of Made Assessors and Providers. I am currently the past president of CAMAP. Uh, as of this uh, past spring, for the first time in seven years, I sit in a different position. Happy to see the evolution of the organization continue. Uh, CAMAP, the Canadian Association of Made Assessors and Providers, began as a grassroots you know, kind of collegial support system for people who were stepping into the space to do this work. There was an obvious need to support each other and learn from each other and figure it out, so to speak. And most fields of medicine have, um, you know, if you're a cardiologist, you might belong to the Cardiology Association of Canada or whatever they're called. Uh, there was no such group 
for uh, clinicians that did this work in Canada because it never previously existed. So it kind of grew out of this grassroots need. At this point, I'm proud to say CAMAP is a national charity uh, that has grown tremendously in the past seven years. And its mission continues to be to support those that do the work of assisted dying. But that's the entire community of passionate and compassionate professionals you know, involved in the delivery of this important work to Canadians. And we do that work primarily, I still say we, uh, we do that work primarily through education, through educating our members, through educating healthcare communities, through educating the public to some extent, but primarily healthcare communities about what MADE is. We do a lot of ongoing education of our membership uh, for training and uh, understanding the legislation and things like that. And what we also do is, uh, importantly, is we connect the network of people together across the country so they can learn from each other and not reinvent the wheel, of course. Um, and then the third thing we do is, is we provide leadership on establishing, you know, the highest medical standards uh, for this care through guidance documents. So I could talk a lot about what CAMAP does. I, I think it's important for Canadians to appreciate that this support of this group of professionals allows clinicians to become available to provide this care. Um, and without this kind of support, you probably won't have clinicians uh, available to provide this care. So I think it can assure Canadians that there are people who are willing to participate, that are professional about it, that are learning together and growing together and constantly evolving in their expertise and always seeking the highest level of care for Canadians. And it's really important to have that confidence. You know, I think in the past six or seven years, we have seen clinicians work very carefully stepping into this space. There's no one, there's no cowboys out there trying to prove a point or to be activists. These are clinicians who are working in a system where, where the rules of the game are written in the criminal code of our country. Like if we don't do this well, or, or we don't do it properly, if we're brazen about it, uh, there's criminal liability. There's jail for 14 years. No one takes this less than very, very seriously. And I think that's an important message to Canadians to understand that the clinician workforce is careful and we do it uh, in a way with an organization that is supporting us to do that. And it's important, I think, to support that organization. I think so too. And it's probably really good for our listeners to hear that there is such an organization that increases education for providers and turns around and supports them. And I'm going to ask a bit of a, a personal question because I am uh, zooming in from Northwestern Ontario. And as you mentioned before, Stephanie, Track 2 Medical Assistance in Dying allows people for whom death is not reasonably foreseeable to access an assisted death. And you talked about some of the stats around that. So that's only a small percentage of people who are accessing MAID for reasons where death is not reasonably foreseeable. But in my region here in Northwestern Ontario, we've seen a substantial decrease in MAID practitioners since Track 2 became available. So I'm interested in hearing from you, are there additional challenges facing practitioners with Track 2? And what might support MAID practitioners around Track 2? And is there any concern that if we continue with MAID to include people whose sole diagnosis is a mental health disorder, that this may also serve to decrease the availability of MAID practitioners. Mm, let me start by saying I'm really sorry to hear that there's been a decrease in clinicians available to do any sort of MAID simply because the track 2 exists. I don't think that's necessary because clinicians can always draw the line of what they're comfortable with and what they're not comfortable with. And 
there's really no reason why someone who was helping people whose death was reasonably foreseeable, they don't need to take on a, a complex case of someone whose death is not reasonably foreseeable. They can certainly continue to do the work that they are comfortable to do. So I, I am surprised that they've pulled back completely. And, that, you know, that concerns me. And I think that needs to concern Canadians because the biggest risk to access to this care will no longer be the law. It is soon going to become access to clinicians willing to do the work. Uh, so, so that's the first thing. I think track two patients, we we'll call track two patients those whose death is not reasonably foreseeable. These situations are, and these people are, are often much more complex. Um, they often have uh, really long medical histories that have, you know, or illnesses or conditions or things they've been dealing with that have not been well served by our healthcare system. These might be things like chronic pain syndromes, uh, things that are, you know, diagnoses that are poorly understood or poorly treated. Or, or not even taken seriously sometimes. So these are often people who uh, initially tried to interact with the medical system and maybe were not able to find what they needed or were marginalized because of it or simply unable to be addressed because they have a situation or a syndrome of pain that cannot be adequately treated by anything that we have in, these, you know, in, in today's modern technology. So often there is a lot of mistrust in the system, a lot of frustration with the system, and uh, a lot of truthfully not being well served by it. So that makes things difficult, challenging to connect, to forge a therapeutic relationship, to gain the trust of a patient, to tell our story, to let them feel heard and validated. That's really important in this work and more challenging uh, sometimes in these situations. So I think that there is more time involved. There's certainly lack of compensation for that time, but that's not the main issue. That is one issue. I mean, I think we need to understand that our healthcare workers today uh, before COVID, were stretched. Our system was clearly breaking uh, already. People are overworked uh, and wondering why they're still in the system. And COVID did not help that situation. I think it pushed many out of the healthcare field. Um, and those who did remain uh, are working their very darndest to stay in and to stay sane and to ask people to pick up a new field of healthcare that they're unsure of that they feel unready for or untrained for, and then to add on top of that a, a more complex situation within that field of care is asking a lot. And a lot of clinicians will say, I believe in that, but I just can't take that on right now. So I think there's a lot of factors involved. I do think, though, it's important to say that when 2016 happened, when this first became possibility, they weren't rushing for the doors to help, right? There were only so many clinicians that stepped up to do this work, very few. And we learned what it was, how to do it, how to get better at it. And slowly we were able to teach others to do that, who then carefully tiptoed into the same space and went through that same process and learned. And we grew. And CAMAP is evidence of that growth from eight clinicians in BC. We're over 500 clinicians across the country right now. So, so that we see that growth. In 2021, when the law was amended to allow access to MAID for those whose death was not reasonably foreseeable, a significant chunk of those clinicians providing this care said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take on those cases. And again, a small number of clinicians stepped into that space, began to learn what it was, how to do it, how to learn about it, how to train others. And we see that number ever so slowly growing. In 2024, when I expect mental health disorders as a sole underlying condition to become legal, I think yet again, for the third time, we will have a very small fraction of clinicians willing to do that work. And again, the same process will happen. So this is not unknown to us. It's not unprecedented. 
It is a constant evolution of a brand new field of care. You know, it has to go slowly. It will go slowly, but it will happen. Oh, I really appreciate the cyclical way you've described that, Stephanie. I love the idea. And I think it's a hopeful depiction of moving forward, which I think is is really necessary, but also really heartfeltly delivered from you. And that's something that I want to bring up again. You mentioned being in Amsterdam in your early days. And one thing I really appreciate about your book is that I uh, believe you to be a reliable narrator. I really feel as we journey through your book together that you are willing to show us warts and all, the stuff that you're struggling with, the stuff that you question, the stuff that you take to bed at night and, you know, um, marinate about the day that you've had, et cetera. And I really appreciate, too, this idea of you, and you've just described it uh, just now, this taking the impetus to become learned in these practices, uh, getting on a plane and going to Amsterdam to a country where assisted dying has been on the books and saying, I'm here to learn, I'm here to watch, as you said earlier, to see one, to do one, and then to teach one. Let's jump on that teach one idea. What advice would you give somebody who's thinking about becoming a maid pro- uh, assessor, provider, a healthcare professional, a, a physician, a nurse practitioner? What advice would you share with them? Well, the first thing I would tell them is that if they are a medical or a nurse practitioner, if they are a clinician out in the world working, if they're licensed, they already possess the skill set required to do this work. So there's no magic potion they need to swallow to be able to do this. Clinicians do this work every day, almost unconsciously, and maybe at a different level, but like every time a clinician offers a prescription to a patient, they have assessed almost subconsciously whether the patient understands what's wrong, why it should be treated, how this treatment might be able to help, what the side effects of this treatment could be, and that they have the capacity to make the decision, an informed decision, to accept or not accept this treatment, this prescription. Like, we, we take for granted that that process of establishing whether someone has capacity to make their own healthcare decisions, that's part of intuitively what we do every day with every interaction with every patient. So the notion that someone needs to learn how to assess whether a patient has capacity to make this decision is a little bit, I mean, it's a little bit over overdone. Like we do that. We, we've been trained to do that. We do it every day, all the time. So that the first thing I would say to someone is you already have the skill set. Do you need a refresher and a robust, you know, uh, invigoration of some of these skills? You bet. If you want to do it well, we better, you know, focus some time and attention on the real skills that need to be developed here. But, but they can already do it. So, so that's the first thing. I think the other thing I would tell uh, clinicians who are remotely interested, um, just from a practical point of view, is they do need to be prepared. They do need to get prepared for this work. It is unique. You need to be prepared to meet your patient. You got to do your homework. Know what you're talking about before you walk in the room. You need to be prepared to have real conversations with people. This isn't about uh, looking at your screen, writing a script and sending them out. Not that I'm suggesting many clinicians do, but you need to be prepared to engage with patients, to hear why they've come to see you, to talk about what their value system is, to explore who they are, who they were, who they are now, who they want to be. You have to be willing to engage. You have to be prepared for that. And then the impact of that, there will be emotional impact on you for that. There will be sometimes exposure to suffering and death and even trauma. 
And you need to set your own boundaries and know what your own resiliency strategies are so that you can continue to do this work well. I think there's, um, there's lots of preparedness and training that will go a really long way to do this work. And I would like to say that that's all available. And I, I'm hoping we're going to come to that in a little bit because I got lots to say about that. So I think that's important. The other thing I would say is that although I didn't recognize it to be so at first, after seven years of doing this work, I can say that to be invited into this intimate space with people, to share this, to witness their journeys at the end of life, and to be in the very privileged position to be the person that they come to and who can facilitate their final wishes is really profoundly meaningful work. And I think any clinician who's considering doing this work ought to know that that potential is there, that it's really, really profoundly meaningful work. And I've had many colleagues tell me unsolicited, as ironic way as possible or not, that this work reminds them why they went into medicine. That they feel that they're helping their patients in a way that they haven't in a long time. And so I think I would tell clinicians all of those things. And I think particularly now, as you said, post-COVID, clinicians need to hear that. And Carrie Lynn and I also heard that in some work that we did around physician experience early on, shortly after medical assistance in dying. Uh, was legalized and that rewarding and the stories that people remembered and held close to their heart and that gave them that sense of meaning again for being in the healthcare roles that they are came across loud and clear. And so we're going to go there and that, that next part that you're alluding to, absolutely, Stephanie. And I think I've got this correct, that you're the co-lead of the Canadian Made Curriculum Project. And I've worked before at a medical school and I understand how challenging it can be to get important things like dying, death, grief and loss onto a medical school curriculum. So what are you hoping that the curriculum project that you're working on will achieve? And what do you want the future healthcare providers of tomorrow to understand about MAID? Yeah, so, so the Canadian MAID curriculum project is a CAMAP led. It's a five-year federally funded nationally recognized, comprehensive, fully accredited, bilingual project to develop, produce, and disseminate an evidence-based national made training program. It's a, it's a beast. It's a, a really important piece of work, and I'm super proud to be part of the project. Um, I, I should say it's a program that's currently aimed at practicing clinicians, not at the schools. Uh, and its purpose, of course, is to educate those who are interested in finding out more about this work or possibly working in the field. So to give them the training and the background, to give them the confidence to step into this space and to do it well. And also to enhance the skills of those who are already in the field, because we could always learn more, of course. And this will be a continuously evolving and advancing uh, training program. So one of its main purposes is to help standardize the approach to assisted dying, you know, across the country so that a patient who shows up in Halifax asking for an assisted death um, is kind of approached with a standardized approach to how they will be assessed and provided made as anyone in Saskatoon or Vancouver. So it doesn't mean the outcomes will be exactly the same, but made is a federal law. But healthcare is delivered provincially, so there are slight differences. But the approach to the care, the standard of the care should be similar everywhere. And that's part of the purpose of this program. I think that it is certainly 
our hope that once this project is off and running, we are releasing our project. Uh, it's rolling out this fall, so in the fall of 2023. But once this project is comfortably rolling and, and people are taking it and hopefully benefiting from it, we do hope, to, you know, in the future to be able to use this material to get into both medical and nursing schools into the curriculum so that future learners will have some base because they're all going to be graduating into a healthcare system where this is a legal covered medical service. And unless they have training in medical school and nursing school to know what it is and how it works, they're going to be at a loss. So that's the obvious next step. Yeah, certainly. You've said so much in the time that we've had to conversate about medical assistance and dying. Uh, and this is the magic wand question. And if I had a magic wand, I'd ask for a second book from Stephanie Green. Uh, but I'm going to hand the magic wand to you. And I'm going to ask on top of all of the things that you've shared so incredibly with us in this conversation, what would you change if you could change one thing about medical assistance and dying in Canada today? Well, that's a loaded question. I, I think, um, you know, I, I would just preface this by saying I think Canada has taken a very bold and very measured step in allowing access to assisted dying. And I think for all the things I could talk about that haven't been done perfectly well, I think we have to tip our hats to the work that has been done, to the step that has been taken, to the way the government has carefully instituted this legislation. I think a tremendous amount of good work has been done. So I think it's important to acknowledge that. I think Canadians are proud of this care. I think they should be proud of this care. I think other countries are looking to Canada, not just to watch and see what happens, but because we have learned from others before us. And so what we're doing is important. They are now going to learn from a model that has learned from others. It's an important model in the world today. And we know the eyes are on us. So first of all, I'm, I'm very proud of the work that we do here. And uh, like I said, hats off to that. If there's one thing I could change, um, other than rectifying all the misinformation out there, which we've already talked about, I think very practically, the one thing I would change in Canada with respect to assisted dying is that we would have more clinicians involved in the care. Because I think when we look to the Dutch model, where a lot of our care is modeled on their model, they have a very strong primary care system in the Netherlands. And about 85% of all assisted deaths in the Netherlands are done by primary care practitioners, family docs, GPs. And so they have a lot of clinicians who understand the system and what's involved who do a very small amount of this work. They cover their own patients. They take care of their own patients. Everybody has a family doctor in the Netherlands. And if you happen to be someone who needs this care, you go to your family doctor and they might provide one or two assisted deaths every couple of years because that's the patient population they take care of. What we have in Canada has not evolved that way yet. We have a small number of clinicians willing to do this work who each do a lot of it. And I think if I could change one thing, I would like to hasten the evolution of the acceptance of assisted dying as one more bit of care that family doctors offer their patients like any other care that they do. And they would do very little of it, but they would be comfortable doing it. And I think our training program can provide that for them. I think if they do our program, they will feel equipped to do that work. And I think that is coming to this country. It's just a matter of when. So I, I would see more clinicians doing the work. And I really like that piece, thinking of it as part of the continuum of care. And again, referencing some of the work that Carolyn and I were doing, we heard that from rural physicians, people in small towns who very much saw it as being part of the care that they provided within the context of their geographical location. 
and it just being a natural progression for them and something that they felt was important when they were called upon by the people who they had known for 20, 30 years in the small town to be able to do that. And that's what made it rewarding and meaningful to them. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. Yeah. Um, Stephanie, was there anything that we should have asked you about today that we didn't, that you want to make sure our listeners hear about? Whenever I'm asked that question, I always like to emphasize that I have really said it. I, I think that people need to know the clinicians in this country that do this work, do it carefully. They do it cautiously. They do it compassionately. They will continue to do so. They will continue to be supported by CAMEP, that Canadians should be confident in the workforce that does this. And I'm very proud to be part of that community. And I want to say, as someone who's been following MADE for a number of years, thank you very much for all the leadership that you have done in this area. And to have conversations like this and to write it in a book that people can learn more about at their own speed and their own time in such a kind and compassionate way. So thank you very much for being a part of our podcast, Dr. Green. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a real pleasure to speak with you both. It's been such a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you very much. That was amazing. Everything she said was just so, 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 yeah, good stuff. We get to speak with some of the coolest people, don't we? I know, right? Seriously. Yeah. I've always appreciated her work, thoroughly enjoyed reading her book, but to have this kind of conversation with her today was so valuable for me. To be able to ask her some of the difficult questions, you know, about how do you respond to yeah. some of the media things. And her to reiterate so clearly that in Canada, the physicians and the nurse practitioners, the people who are made assessors and providers are doing it in a way that we can trust. Yeah. I love that use of the term cowboy. You know, she's so right. People have not gone into this, you know, and they're phoning it in, right? Like, it's just amazing. She hit so many really important things right on the head. And when you say how clearly she was able to share those things, just amazing. I love that idea too of the evolution of the legislation. You know, then people step up and say, yep, I've read, I understand, and now I'm willing to be a part. And that's a cycle. That's cyclically happening. I just love that. That really resonated with me too, because in some ways it feels like it's moving quickly. But when you think about it, how she articulates it, you know, from when it started in 2017 and the work that they've been doing and what they're seeing and how they can now, they, people who are leading medical assistance in dying being an option for Canadians, how they know this next step, what's going to happen. It's going to go slow. There will be some people who say, no, I don't want to be a provider. But the people who say yes will demonstrate that it can be done, it can be done well, mm -hmm. and more people will come to it and move it along. I think too, I completely concur. And I think what I also heard that I really appreciated was this idea that people considering becoming made assessors and providers already have this skill set. I love that because what she's doing is she's demystifying what people consider, um, you know, oh, I'm not sure that I would have the wherewithal, the uh, practical application to do something like that. And demystifying that and saying, you're a clinician, you already have these skills. Um, so, yeah, taking people through the practicalities of what provision would look like, uh, assessment and provision, but 
really talking to that humanity side of what medical assistance and dying really is in Canada. I love that. I did too. And I can't wait to be able to see Dr. Green's TEDx talk. And I encourage people to pick up her book if you haven't already and give it a read. Do yourself a favor and learn more about assisted dying from one of our Canadian leaders in this area. So thank you so very much for listening. Big thanks again to Dr. Green for her time and energy for our discussion today. And if you know of somebody, perhaps you know of a MAID provider in your community who's doing what we talked about with Stephanie, who's integrating it as part of the care that they've been providing in your community for years, we'd love to talk to that person. If there's anything that you think we should be talking about on this podcast, let us know. Leave us a note. Thanks very much for listening and keep the conversations going. Till next time.